Good. So, good morning. Welcome again to our retreat here on Bear Island, where we are walking through the passion narrative of Holy Week, uh, the last days of Jesus, and allowing the story to inform us, to form us, and to shed light upon our own journey, upon the human journey, the human uh, condition. Um, and the little group here that's uh, here for the week on retreat, I've invited them to uh, write some haikus, short little poems, and maybe those of you uh, joining us um, online might like to think of this as well. You probably have slightly busier lives than we do here on Bear Island during this retreat, but writing a haiku is a, is, is a nice contemplative way of coming into the present moment and to be, uh, come in, uh, Grace, sorry. Thank you. Sorry. Mm. Uh, coming into the present moment and sort of not capturing maybe, but reflecting, holding with a light touch, holding a moment of uh, perception, a moment of grace, a moment of, of awareness. So here, they're very different, and normally they're just three lines, uh, but our group here is being a little, um, what's the word, singular, in the way they are interpreting that, but three lines uh, is, is g gives you a little frame, discipline to work with. Anyway, these are a couple. The lamb, we're surrounded by lambs here at the moment on Bear Island. The lamb towards me ran. Oh joy, he wants to greet me. His hidden friend jumped out. I'm always struck by the way, you know, newborn lambs have such energy and they just can't, they don't know where to put it. And they just run from one end of the field to the other and do a little jump and turn around and run back. They seem to hit middle age very quickly. <laughs> and within a few weeks, they're just, just munching grass all day long. So a warning to us all. And this is another one. Nice soft day, he says. A soft day in Ireland is a, a day where it's raining, uh, but raining very gently, almost like a, a mist, a misty kind of rain. And, Explains the Irish beautiful complexion the Irish have, somebody told me. Nice soft day, he says. Is that what it is, I say? The babbling streams, now waterfalls. We've <laughs> 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 had it. Hmm. Very good. Well, um, so we, yesterday we were looking at uh, Gethsemane that moment uh, in the dead of night when Jesus went with a group of his disciples and went further into solitude with three of them uh, to pray, to pray on this last night uh, and his, um, his confrontation with his fear of death and with, I suppose we would say, the experience of failure or the experience of oppression uh, which we can all identify with at certain moments in our lives and we see we saw that you know he his heart was breaking within him he was physically uh, desperate when anxiety and fear overcome us we, we, we feel this in our bodies not just uh, abstractly and the whole of the Passion's narrative really is, a, is an expression of the fact that we are embodied beings, that we find meaning in and through our bodies, not just in some kind of abstract intellectual way. And that meaning is not just uh, an explanation, you know, the answer. You may remember in the Hitchhiker's Guide for the, no, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, which uh, I was... Well, to the galaxy, yes, thank you. Uh, I was going to say Hitchhiker's Guide for the Perplexed, but that's Maimonides. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, this is a very funny book. Um, 
the, uh, th there's a, a race that is trying to find out the meaning of the universe and they have the greatest computers in the cosmos at work and they work for millions or billions of years. Um, and finally, there's a sign that it's going to deliver, finally, the answer to the universe. What is it all about? So they all gather around and then the computer delivers its answer and the answer is 42. <laughs> <laughs> so that may be the, uh, the meaning of the universe, but we don't know what that means. So meaning isn't just an answer. It's not just an uh, explanation. Maybe in our belief system, I was speaking the other day about the distinction between belief and faith. Well, our belief system gives us some symbols and ideas about how to make the decisions we need to make, how to, how to um, base our uh, criteria for, for, for living. Um, but it doesn't give us the answers that we would like to have written in the back of the book. Because meaning itself is the experience of connection or the perception of connection. It's knowing that we are connected and the body is our primary means of connection. Uh, most of our communication with each other is non-verbal. So if we are not embodied and our minds are not in touch with that physical dimension, we're going to lack or have a weak sense of this connection. And without connection, we, we, we suffer from meaninglessness. A friend of mine who worked many years with the dying told me that dying, uh, dying people who have accepted their condition, their mortality, their terminal condition, and if their basic needs are being um, met and looked after, then they will often say, if they have a sense of meaning, they will say that they've never, almost never had it so good. They will, will never, if they've never felt a better quality of life. And that quality of life is, is really to do with their sense of belonging, their sense of connection, their sense of so on. So, um, so, this, uh, <coughs> so we see Jesus uh, in Gethsemane struggling as we all do from time to time and we will all have to do at the end with this, uh, this, this real meaning of meaning. And f for him, and perhaps as for us, it, it is never quite as perfect as we would like. Um, we, we saw that the disciples were not able to really be present to him as he went through his, his, the agony of his prayer in the garden. Um, but he didn't, that didn't lead him to disconnect. He remained connected. And the ultimate connection is with the ground of our being with the, the one that he calls Abba, Father, this personal ground of being, not an abstract, conceptual, philosophical ground, but a personal ground where we feel connected, where we know we belong. So that, that's, that uh, emerges strongly after his agony, and we see a very different tone in his voice it seems when he goes back to find the disciples asleep again and he, he says, get up now, we've got something to do. We have to engage with the world. So he's avoided the great danger of suffering and affliction, which is the danger of depression. Depression being our very understandable, at times, collapse into the darkness, into the negativity, into what we don't have, or into the grief of having lost something precious. So it's, depression 
is very understandable. We all have moments of depression or phases of depression, perhaps. But, um, but there is a way of going through suffering and affliction even um, without collapsing into this inner darkness. So now with this uh, new sort of groundedness and strength, really, we see Jesus engaging with his persecutors, the people who were going to arrest him, who arrested him. Um, and although he is bound and, and humiliated, as we'll see now, he, he, never, he never ceases to give us the impression that he is still at the center of it all. It doesn't... Um, he suffers, but he doesn't either become bitter or angry uh, or withdraw into a kind of depressed isolation or disconnectedness, all of which we are prone to do when we are unhappy. So, uh, he's, he's exhibiting, he's manifesting a profound centeredness and sense of connection to that center. And that is what is going to take him through the uh, rest of the passion narrative. So now we, um, uh, we move to the next scene in the story, which is the trial. So he's arrested in the garden uh, and is, confronts his betrayer, confronts his, uh, those arresting him with, 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 a, with a dignity and with a, a clarity of mind. Um, and then he's taken to the high priest. This is in the middle of the night. This is when uh, people are most vulnerable and what we do under the cover of darkness can avoid uh, accusation later. Uh, they say Che Guevara, when he was appointed by Castro as I think, Minister of Finance in Cuba after the revolution, um, used to summon the, um, the capitalist uh, uh, state owners to his office at, in the middle of the night and give them the ultimatum, either they sign this paper handing over their property to the state or else. And uh, doing that in the middle of the night to make, you know, is, makes you even more uh, anxious and vulnerable and uh, frightened, of course. So this, these are the conditions in which they led Jesus away to the high priest's house where the chief priests, the elders, and the doctors of the law were all assembling. So here we have the full panoply of power. These are all the establishment. These are the top guys, and all guys, of course, top guys, all assembling. Peter followed him at a distance. It's a nice counterpoint. Peter, who is, who is the kind of the, the leader of the apostles, but also a pretty a, a man with feet of clay and some instability himself, uh, follows him alone. And he remains there sitting among the attendants, warming himself at the fire. So uh, the scene is very dramatic. Uh, even we can imagine the, the crowd of, of the lawyers and the priests and the uh, and the, the serving people there all must have been got up late at night to look after them and uh, and the fire burning there in the cold the chief priests and the whole council tried to find some evidence against Jesus to warrant a death sentence but they failed to find any many gave false evidence against him but their statements did not tally. Some stood up and gave this false evidence against him. But even on this point, 
at various points that they accuse him of, uh, their evidence did not agree. So, even though you, you, they have decided what is going to be the outcome of this trial, show trial, um, they have to observe appearances, pr protect appearances. What we see here is the is an, a corruption of power. This is not how power should be used, either religious power or political power, to trap and condemn the innocents even before they've had a chance to to face their charges. Uh, it's not. It's not only shows us the the perennial corruption of power that that happens. We see it in many parts of the world today. But we also see the, the insecurity of those who pervert their responsibilities, who, corrupt, who are corrupted by power in this way, that they need to put on a show. They need to find some way of of pretending that there is a real issue here, there's a real trial, there's a real process, there's a real presumption of guilt. And so they have to go through this, this hypocrisy. And we all do it. When we have an argument with somebody um, and we're defending our own particular position, even though there may be a little nagging voice in us that says, well, actually, your position isn't as strong as you think. But you've already, you've already cast the die. You know, you've already taken your position. The other person is, is uh, disagreeing or attacking you. And so you get reinforced in your position. You become more absolute, more, ex more extreme. And in the end, you know, you'll twist the facts or leave out facts in order to prove your point. All that matters is that you are seen to win. But on the other hand, you also have to be seen to win according to the rules. So there's nothing we do, however immoral it may be, that we don't find some justification for. Um, we, we have to invoke some measure, some idea of goodness, some idea of reason, even to do things that are blatantly non-good, ungood, and evil, or which are clearly irrational. And it, it shows the fragility of the human mind and our relationship to our ethical uh, responsibilities, how easy it is for us all, either in a domestic argument or in a political system, how easy it is for us to fall away from the truth. And this question of truth is at the heart of every trial. So what they are pretending to be wanting to get at is the truth. And, but they've already decided that the truth isn't what matters. What matters is that they get the verdict they want and they get the outcome they want, which is to get rid of this troublemaker. So, what, we, what we're beginning to see in this appearance of a, of a just trial is the truth that Jesus is representing, or the truth that he is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And remember, truth like meaning is not an answer or an explanation. Uh, it's not even just a position you hold or facts that you can gather. So what is truth? This is what we are invited to discover. We can see the destruction of truth in this process, in the injustice. Truth is always related to justice. So we can see that immediately truth is, is the casualty of this unjust behavior. So we can see what, what it is not, but we're being introduced to 
the perception of what truth really means. So they fail to get this uh, superficial uh, agreement. Uh, then the high priest stood up in his place and questioned Jesus. Have you no answer to the charges that these witnesses bring against you? So even though the, the charges or the evidence of the witnesses was clearly contradictory and uh, flawed, um, nevertheless, these are, these are what he presents to Jesus. And, and how does Jesus respond? He kept silence. He made no reply. Again, the high priest questioned him. They've got to get some response. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And then Jesus does reply, strangely and surprisingly, Jesus said, I am. So his fate is sealed. But he says it. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, the high priest then puts on this show of, well, of, of uh, outrage. He tore his robes and said, we don't need to, do, do we need to call further witnesses? He has, uh, you've heard the blasphemy. Jesus is, is executed for blasphemy. Uh, what is your opinion? Well, no, not surprisingly, their judgment was unanimous. He was guilty and should be put to death. So, quite an economical trial. Doesn't drag on for weeks. So, but it's, it's surprising to us, because in Mark's Gospel, especially, there's what's called the secrecy motif or the messianic secret. In many places, especially in, in Mark, when he, Jesus performs a miracle, uh, heals someone, he says to the person, now go home, or pick up your life, and get on with, with your, your life, uh, but don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell them. And here, and here he is, at this crucial moment, being very open about who who he is. Now, of course, we have also to remember this story and the gospel, all the gospels, are written after the event. And which is the, what is the event after which they are written? It's not only the, the, the passion, it's after the resurrection. And after maybe a couple of decades, or several decades in some cases, after the resurrection after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that, um, that, they are, that these accounts are written. So they are already the fruit of a long personal and communal reflection on the meaning of these events. What does it mean? What, what does the, the, any aspect of this mean? So, um, the people who he asked to keep silence disobeyed him. Nearly all of them run off and tell everybody uh, what he did for them. So it's a strange, it's a strange feature of, of the gospel. Um, he asked them to keep quiet. They don't. He avoids direct answers to this question. But here at this moment, where his life hangs in the balance, uh, he, he says as simply and as clearly as anyone could wish who he is. But before that, there was this moment of silence. And we'll, we'll see the silence uh, return, his, his response of silence. Silence isn't just, his silence is not an evasion 
not a running away, it's a response. It's a response to loaded questions or a response to the inappropriate questions. Or it's a response, we might say, to the hypocrisy of the questioner. So he keeps silence. It's very difficult to give an answer, a verbal answer, to the kind of questions that really matter in life. The questions that Jesus is being asked here. Um, we, we can only answer questions according to the categories that we have at hand. And the categories need to be shared, there need to be a common understanding of what they mean. Um, otherwise, we, we're not communicating. This is the problem of language and thought. That the, the nuances and the meaning of words and terms like Messiah, for example, uh, may be very different for different people. So we're, 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 as far as language, or what we call theologically the cataphatic response, that means giving an answer or an illustration or using words or thoughts, uh, concepts, ideas, images to to, to respond to the question, that this cataphatic approach is uh, depends upon a shared system of understanding, a shared language, a common understanding. One of the problems we have today is that we are rapidly losing this common language and why it's so vital that we renew the language of, of faith, and the language by which we express and understand to other, with others uh, the meaning of the gospel. But if, that's, if those stories are not present in the minds of the people we're talking to, as they are not present usually in the minds of the young, uh, most of us here would have, would have grown up with these stories. Um, but if they're not there at all, if the common language isn't there, how do we communicate? Well, that's the answer is silence. It's silence that generates, eventually generates a new language. If the, if the words cannot be trusted, if the meaning of the words cannot be shared, then we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the pure experience, which is not described, not illustrated, not conceptualized. And that's the, that experience of the ground of our being, of our connection with the personal ground of our being. Uh, and that is in silence. So, so, the, so the, the silence of Jesus that we see during this trial and increasingly really throughout this, uh, the rest of the story is not, is not uh, a negative silence. And that's why it's so loud and so powerful compared with the, the noise and the abuse and the screaming that is going on around him. So there are different kinds of silence if we think it just of our own lives. There's the silence, the negative silence, where we have maybe been hurt or something has made us angry or upset and we withdraw from relationship with the person or the, the situation that, that caused this for us. We withdraw from it and refuse to communicate. And it's, it's, that's very obvious, especially if you're in the physical presence 
of someone who is retreating into that negative silence, you know immediately this is negative silence. Uh, their body language, everything tells you. And it's, uh, it, it sours the relationship. And it betrays the fidelity that we all owe to each other and to the truth. Because So this negative silence can allow us to avoid conflict, which is frightening for, for, for many people, uh, hurtful to many people. Um, so it allows us to avoid conflict, or what it actually does is to interiorize the conflict. We just build it up in ourselves this kind of silence is not healing, it's not liberating. It, it builds up a pressure, becomes a pressure cooker within us. And then we maybe, we, we say, you know, I'm never going to speak to that person again, or I just refuse to talk about it. And then, you know, it bursts out. Something tr triggers it, and you've, you've said too much, and you've said the wrong thing, and you've said too much of it, and more damage is done. So this negative science, and I think you see this in families, in personal relationships, you find it in work, you find it between governments, you know. So we find it in all forms of human interaction. Um, what it's often triggered by is the fear of conflict, because we don't know where the conflict may take us. If we actually bring conflict out into the open, Jesus was never frightened of doing that. If we take conflict out into the open and say what we truly think and feel, then this may lead us, you know, into, uh, in, into the, an unpredictable um, and uncontrollable situation where we, we don't know how other people are going to react or we don't know how things will turn out. So that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that um, we have to, if, if we are, uh, the negative silence is often a way of protecting our hypocrisy. That we know something about ourselves, like the high priests and the lawyers all knew that they were there to, to stitch him up. Uh, there was no real trial, honest trial taking place. But they couldn't admit that to even to themselves. So there's this n the danger of negative silence. But there's another kind of silence, true silence, which doesn't become a pressure cooker building up into open conflict but, or, or destructive of relationships. But it's the silence that allows communion to be communicated. It's the silence where we trust the other, even if they have potentially some, present us with some risk or threat. Um, when we meditate together, we are expressing a very powerful trust in each other. I mean, at the simplest level, we're closing our eyes in the presence of people who might suddenly jump on you and, I don't know, steal your bag or take the glasses off your head or whatever. Uh, and although we, we, you know, that, we laugh at that, but there are people, and children as well, who, f for various reasons, find it terrifying to close their eyes. Like a, a prisoner once I heard about who for weeks and weeks could not, we would join the meditation group, but could not close his eyes. Eventually he did and what he was struggling with and frightened of came out in, later in conversation with the group leader. But, and children, you know, maybe suffering some, some domestic situation, uh, often, or can sometimes find it uh, frightening to close their eyes. And of course, you, you shouldn't force them to close their eyes. 
But it's the first sign of trust. And then the deeper experience of trust is that we, we are silent together. And that we sustain the silence for a prolonged period of time. And in a way that goes against our natural suspicions of other people. Um, there's always part of us that remains a little suspicious. Maybe this person is going to be a threat, maybe this person is going to get something out of me, whatever. So that suspiciousness, that reserve, that way of seeing other people as a danger, uh, decreases with the, through the meditation and with with meditation on a regular basis together, you become surprisingly trusting and familiar with each other. You sort of recognize each other, even if you don't have much information about the people you're, you've been meditating with every week. You don't know a lot about them, but you know them. And so silence, creative silence like this, has a great potential to heal us of our uh, fear, our suspicion, and to open us to a deeper level of um, relationship. So one of the, the meanings that I think we can see in the narrative is silence is the meaning of silence. And here for the first time, we, we saw it perhaps also in Gethsemane where Jesus prayed alone and in silence. Uh, but we see it very concretely here where he, he can be silent and has the confidence to be silent in the right way. So immediately after this exchange, um, the verdict is given and um, no further witnesses are needed. He's sentenced to death and immediately it says some began to spit on him, blindfolded him and struck him with their fists, crying out, prophesy! And the high priest men set upon him with blows. Very quick, wasn't it? And because he had now become an outcast, he was no longer protected or part of their community. He wasn't even a troublemaker in their community. He was excluded from community, from human fellowship. And once that has happened, they become uh, that person excluded becomes dehumanized and there may and, and what you do to a non-human goes you know you, 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 you would hesitate to do to a human um, this is why cruelty to animals for example is usually a sign that people have the potential to be cruel, abusive to other human beings. Anyway, so immediately after this verdict, he moves into this other category. So we now see him isolated. We have seen him in solitude, but still part of a community, still a citizen, as it were, and the member of a religious, religious group with a religious identity. Now that has been stripped from him because of his blasphemy, and he's been dehumanized. Uh, now he doesn't cease to be solitary. He's confidently centered in his own identity, his own uniqueness which is what solitude means. But in addition to that, he has now become isolated. 
For most of us, that experience of exclusion, rejection, and isolation is terrifying. Understandably, it's affliction. Every aspect of your identity, of your way of being in the world, has been twisted. Every aspect of it, when you're, when you're in his situation. So, uh, so this is another insight into the, not only do we see different kinds of, si of silence, different levels of meaning in this story, we also see different kinds of suffering and different kinds of cruelty. Um, there are every so often there are these uh, horrifying stories, usually with a video attached, of um, old people, sometimes with dementia, being abused uh, in their care homes. And you see this, this happening, you know, a carer comes in and abuses them, caught on camera. And it's unbelievable that anyone could do that. But human, human beings, even respectable human beings, are capable of it. The innocent, the defenseless, the vulnerable, are the easy ones to, uh, to abuse. Why do we want to do it? What is it in us, out of what dark place in ourselves, in our own woundedness, it's not that these abusers are totally evil people, obviously. But what part of us can become so enraged or so painful or so isolated that the only way to express it is to abuse the defenseless? It's a way, of course, of hiding from our own lack of integrity, but also it's a, it's a demonstration of our own chronic loneliness. And the kind of fellowship that you might enjoy with other people who are engaged in this kind of abuse, and that is often the case, you get a group of people who will beat up you know, a homeless person or many stories in the concentration camps. So that looks like a fellowship. It's, it's a fellowship of the isolated. It's a fellowship of the lonely. It's an inversion, contradiction of what human community should be. So even, in the, even at that moment, which is a pretty dark moment in the story, because it's not only we not only feel empathy for Jesus in his crisis, but we also see this, get this insight into the capacity of human nature to become dehumanized. So we're dealing with a dark force here, but then we see, and then we see Peter. Peter is confronted by the, uh, the serving girl who uh, seems to recognize him and says, you, you're, you're one of his followers, that Galilean guy's followers. Um, and Peter, seeing what is happening to Jesus and what will happen to his followers, as a consequence, uh, withdraws and denies Jesus uh, three times, as Jesus had predicted. And um, later, after the resurrection, he's, Jesus asked him three questions. Uh, do you love me? He asks, asks him the same question three times in different, slightly different ways. And uh, Peter gets upset and says, look, I've already answered you twice. Um, but it's his, it's his balancing out of this triple denial. Uh, and his healing of it. What's important to remember 
is that this betrayal of Jesus, or his denial of Jesus, is um, he never gets blamed for it. Usually if somebody lets us down badly like this, denies us, betrays us, uh, we, you know, we, we may be open to reconciliation and forgiveness, but you know, there is always a sense of blame. But there is no blaming in this story. Even though Jesus has been pretty, pretty badly treated by everybody and thrust out into this uh, state of affliction, he never blames anyone. He doesn't need to. Because he hasn't been degraded. Uh, he's been socially degraded, uh, psychologically uh, wounded, but at the deepest level of his being, he remains who he is and knows who he is and is centered. So he doesn't accept this role of the victim in a way. Clearly he's a victim. But he doesn't identify with this role. And there's a message there for us. Because the struggle we often have with forgiveness arises from the fact that we have allowed ourselves, or, or it has happened, that we feel degraded uh, at, the, at the deep center of our identity. Hurt, we would call it. We just feel very deeply hurt. But what that means, very often, is that we have been, we've, understandably, it's not that we're, we're to blame, but uh, that we've, we have allowed ourselves to identify, to be identified with this role, or this appearance of, of the victim. And that's what, is, that's what blocks us from forgiveness. So we have to heal and to leave behind that self-image. Jesus doesn't have that self-image, which shows us that it is humanly possible to go through affliction even um, w without collapsing into this negative uh, image that has been created for us. So we have the capacity to forgive if we have reconnected to our true self, to our real identity. If we haven't, we will still be struggling, demanding apologies or demanding reparation or you know, making, wanting the other person to suffer uh, for what they've done. But if we are in touch with our true self, and Jesus is in that solitude of the true self, then forgiveness flows. It's a mighty force, actually. Gentle, but mighty healing force. So, um, so Peter, so um, in other gospel accounts, at that moment when uh, Peter uh, denies Jesus, Jesus turns and looks at him. You don't see that in Mark, because Mark's very economical. So they added little other details as they told the story from different angles. But um, what, is, what is in the look of Jesus, do you think? Compassion. Compassion. So not blame not hatred, you know, as you might look. If you imagine somebody in, in, in the dock and he, he sees somebody he hoped was going to defend him, you know, turn against him, you know, he would give him a look, a look to kill. So we have to decide what kind of look Jesus, Jesus gives, what kind of gaze Jesus bestows on Peter at this moment. Uh, 
Mark says, he burst into tears. And what are those tears? Shame, sorrow, guilt, regret. We cry when we've lost control, when something becomes overwhelming. It's good to cry. But, so, it's not easy to give one simple explanation, perhaps, for what those tears mean, because we know it means all of these things. But what triggers the tears, we might say, is not only the self-accusation that we might feel when we've done something we regret, but also, more positively, that gaze of compassion that he felt on him, just at the moment where he would have felt, I deserve blame, because I blame myself. Just when we, he would have no defense against being blamed by Jesus. At that moment, he doesn't get blamed. And I think this suggests the very the increasingly powerful contemplative consciousness that builds up in the story of the passion narrative. And this moment of silence, the first moment of silence where Jesus does not give a reply to the high priest is the beginning of this contemplative presence. And the second, I think, is in this, this moment of uh, after his, uh, his abuse by the, by the gods and the denial by Peter, uh, this gaze, which can only be a gaze of compassion, not, not of rebuke or recrimination. So we're beginning to, to sense, I think, that while all of this tragedy is, is taking place, and there's another part of the trial, which we'll look at later this afternoon, with Pilate, while all of this is building up, these are external events building up towards their inevitable outcome. But what is also building up is this silent awareness, this, this fully silent presence that Jesus embodies and that um, is his, that's what makes him the center and the unshakable center really, the still center. Not that it's unshakable, but it's the still center of the, um, <coughs> of what he's going through. <coughs>